Dear brethren and sisters and young people, shalom. Well, somewhat sad, brethren and sisters, that our studies are coming to a conclusion on the Lord's Prayer. Today we shall cover that last section of the Lord's Prayer. I believe that in the time that we've had together that we've been able to share some of the thoughts which we have on the Lord's Prayer and thank you very much to the brethren and sisters who have helped me also with uh, uh, information that they've been able to give me that we can add to our notes in the future. When we started this study though I had intended to just say a few words in regard to prayer itself although our study is not of course on prayer but there are some things related to the Lord's Prayer that we would need of course just to consider uh, for a moment. And so I'm going to just throw these overheads up. We won't spend a lot of time on them. But we need to be reminded of course firstly of the importance of prayer. Do you always have that okay? <coughs> Prayer, brethren and sisters, plays a very important part in our life. For those who have children, we begin when they are younger and teach them to pray before they go to sleep each night, that it might become to them a habit, we might say, although of course there are good and bad habits. Nothing wrong with a habit if it is good. And when one gets into that habit of offering prayers unto God, it's a very good habit indeed and one that will help us. And while it is necessary for us, brethren and sisters, to see that prayer takes place in the whole of our life, of course it's important to start that teaching with our young and we do that perhaps once a day as we put them to, into their beds. But for us, brethren and sisters, it's a very, very, very important part of our life. In fact, very clearly, the Lord Jesus Christ, speaking of the latter days when he says that shall I find the faith on the earth, is speaking... Uh, particularly in the context of prayer. It is following, of course, his exhortations on praying continually. And so prayer, or the lack of it, brethren and sisters, is one of the signs of the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we need to take heed to that. Now, I don't want to go through all those quotations, but the first one impresses me greatly because, of course, we know the words in Revelation 5, verse 8 concerning those who are blessed with immortality. We've quoted verse 10 several times. We shall be king priests. But in verse 8 we are told that they are those who have in their hands the vials full of odours which are the prayers of the saints. Now to me the power of that verse, brethren and sisters, is this, that there is a verse that deals with the return of Christ, the bestowal of immortality upon the saints, and of all the characteristics, and there must be hundreds, brethren and sisters, which the word points out that we should inculcate into our lives. All those things we are told by the word that we should include in our life, only one, only one is mentioned in that verse which distinguishes these people as suitable for becoming kings and priests, that they had vials full of odours which are the prayers of the saints. And I feel if ever there is a verse that emphasises the importance of prayer, it is that. For God has chosen that above any other principle to express the, uh, the type of people he is dealing with in Revelation 5. And so prayer, brethren and sisters, is a very important part of our life. And the Lord's Prayer that we have been dealing with, of course, forms part of that. Because the Lord Jesus Christ did give it to us that we might use it. 
Of course, the difference between the Matthew record and the Luke record is that the Luke record does tell us uh, to tell, it tells us to pray this way. In other words, to pray in those words. Uh, whereas Matthew, of course, uh, gives it to us as a uh, as an outline, if you like, for the pray- our prayers unto God. But it is a prayer we can use and we should use, brethren and sisters, both privately and ecclesially. But we should also use, of course, in our life, those prayers, uh, personal prayers, uh, which express our feelings to God. We're going to pick up some of these things a little later in today's study. But there are, of course, that we need to be reminded there are hindrances to acceptable prayer. Because we are the sons and daughters of the living God does not mean, brethren and sisters, that our prayers are always heard. It's like the subject we dealt with yesterday with forgiveness. Forgiveness is provisional. There are those uh, provisions which God has put upon acceptable, that we might be acceptable for forgiveness. So it is when we come to prayer. And of course, there we have these verses which tell us that in company with prayer there is a need for the study of the word of God. A deliberate sin, brethren and sisters, a deliberate sin with the intention of us doing it again and again is unacceptable as far as God is concerned for forgiveness. Pride is one of those things that are mentioned in regard to prayer. And so the the scribes and the Pharisees, as they stood there before the people, and they proudly in front of all the people offered their prayers to God was totally unacceptable to God. There is of course the fact that we picked up yesterday that if we are unforgiving, if we do not forgive our brethren and sisters then will we not also be forgiven ourselves. We can ask amiss. And what that means brethren and sisters really is firstly that our prayers are not in accordance with the will of God. Therefore it's not in accordance with the will of God it will not be granted. But it also means, brethren and sisters, that sometimes we pray not only for things that God would not do, but things which are only designed for ourselves. And they will not be answered either. And so we have the, and finally, the point that we have in the first of Peter, that even our attitudes to each other as husband and wife is hindering to our prayers. And we state in regard to the subject of marriage and divorce, with all the arguments we have from scriptures for the for and against, there are verses such as this that take a totally different angle in that point. Forgiveness was one of them. If we cannot forgive our brethren, we will not be forgiven. How then can a couple who have gone through the state of divorce, and I'm talking of brethren and sisters here, who go as far as divorce, how could they possibly say before God, we forgive the person? In fact, divorce is to say, I will no more forgive that person for what they have done. I've run out of forgiveness. Uh, There's one of the parts of this this prayer which relate to that subject, which we don't often discuss. Here's another, as far as prayer is concerned. A prayer of a couple who are not living in harmony, brethren and sisters, according to Peter, is unacceptable to God. Where does one stand when one takes those sort of actions against their partner? So there are other verses, other than the ones that specifically speak of, of uh, marriage and of, um, of separation. There are other verses that also uh, uh, are involved, involved in the principles concerned. And then there's another issue, brethren and sisters, that really is related to our subject because we start our prayer with our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. 
We have a tendency today, at least in South Australia, for some to not use the terms thee, thou and thy, but to use the modern terminology of you and your. It's wrong, brethren and sisters, there's no way out of that. It is wrong to do such on many points, many, many, uh, uh, from many angles. One of them, of course, is that it is doctrinally misleading. If you have a look in the front of the NIV translation, which is called the ecumenical translation, it was to bring churches together. The translation that probably is more responsible than any other for people using the you and your, they actually admit in the preface that the term thy, um, thee and thou and thy is inappropriate for the God of the Christian church because he is not singular, he is plural. And they actually admit that in the beginning. So when we use those terms, and particularly because we've got them from the NIV, we are endorsing that type of approach. It is doctrinally misleading, particularly to our interested friends in a lecture, because it, of course, gives the indication that our God is the same God that they worship. And it is not, of course. Uh, they worship a trinity. We worship the one true God. Textually, it's incorrect. And that's a, a wonderful study in itself, because... In the Greek and in the Hebrew, they are, of course, singular and plural, or it's equivalent thereof. <coughs> Not always called that, but the equivalent of. And the translators have endeavoured to pick that up in the use of you and your and thou and thee. And so, textually, the, the uh, way in which we read our scriptures is correct. There is a distinction between those two. And it's worth a study, brethren and sisters, to just go through and look up where these words are linked together. I'll give you a couple of examples. I just don't want to spend a lot of time on this, but for instance in Matthew 3, verses 11 and 14, we read, I indeed baptise you with water unto repentance, but he that cometh after me is mightier than I, whose shoes I am not worthy to bear. He shall baptise you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. But John forbade him, saying, I have need to be baptised of thee, and comest thou to me. And you notice straight away that in the beginning of that, there is the, the, um, uh, the comment by John to the crowd, to those who were around listening. And they become the you that he speaks to. And he gives them the promise that, of course, uh, would come with the acceptance of the Lord Jesus Christ. But when he turns to the Lord Jesus Christ, he is talking to him alone and he therefore uses the word thee and thou because it's the singular. In Matthew 8, again, it comes out where the Lord Jesus Christ says, I say unto you that many shall come from the east and west and shall sit down with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. And Jesus said unto the centurion, Go thy way, as thou hast believed, so be it done to thee. So he starts off by saying, I say unto you. He wasn't just talking to the centurion, he was talking to the rest of the people. But when he wants to concentrate on the centurion, he says, Go thy way, as thou hast believed, so it be done unto thee. And so he focuses in on the singular, on the centurion. The case of, of the Lord Jesus Christ speaking to Peter is another classic example. He turned unto Peter and said, Get thee behind me, Satan, for uh, Satan, thou, singular, art an offence unto me. For thou, singular, Peter, savourest not the things that be of God, but those that be of men. Verily I say unto you, there be some standing here which will not taste of death. 
and we've take, got the Lord Jesus Christ who has been speaking personally to Peter in the singular, thee, thou. And he turns now to the crowd. There be some amongst you. And so it's a study in itself and I found it quite exciting to, to go through the Bible and to mark them in because immediately then you, when you read those verses you know whether he's talking to the multitude or whether he's talking to an individual. And so there is this textually incorrect aspect if we are simply mixing the terminology. It's irreverent, brethren and sisters, and we should know that above all others. Those who wrote the scriptures knew that. And in fact, in such um, um, translations as the NASB, in their preface, they make the point that they remain, although that's a modern translation, they have maintained the thee and thou in reference to Almighty God because of the reverence which is lost if you turn it to you and your. Now if the world can see that, brethren and sisters, surely we as the servants of God can see that we need to use a special term to remember the reverence of the one that we are approaching It confuses the use of scripture, which of course we've just seen from those quotations. It was definitely introduced by the church. If you ever have an opportunity to read a book called All Roads Lead to Rome, it's on the ecumenical movement and there is a complete chapter on the NIV, which they call the ecumenical translation, and how it was designed by the church to bring everybody back. It wasn't a case of churches joining, or rather Uh, yes, joining together, it was a case of all the churches having to come back to the Church of Rome. And that's what it was designed for. That's what the NIV was designed for, written by the church for that particular purpose. We need to be aware of that, brethren and sisters, and not use it. And of course, it is used in modern translations and I in fact have made a point myself of when somebody uses it to say, what is your favourite translation uh, outside the authorised and do you use it very much and it's always the NIV and so we point out that that is an ecumenical translation and it's one that's designed to bring us in conformity with the Roman church the other argument I haven't got there brethren and sisters is that they'll say but it's old English it's the way they spoke in that day so it's not all that important in that sense we merely now use the language that would be familiar with us well that also brethren and sisters is not true And you can prove that just within a few moments because you tell the person to go back to the preface of your Bible that you have, the King James Version, the letter to King James, written to him, a whole page of it. There is not one thee, our thou in that page. It is you and your because that was their common language and they chose to use thee and thou because it was a special reference to Almighty God. If the world can see that, brethren and sisters, then surely we can see it and we should approach prayer that same way. So we preface our remarks this afternoon with those comments. As I said, I apologise that they were not there and we didn't deal with them to start with, but I think they are important, particularly that latter one, because of the popularity today of using the modern terminology. And so we come now, brethren and sisters, to what really is the the last portion of the prayer of the Lord Jesus Christ in Matthew 6. If we were in Luke uh, 11's record, it would be the concluding of the prayer, for it concludes with this comment, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. In the Matthew record, however, there is a doxology, a section on the end of that, which concludes it, which I feel is very appropriate for us, and we shall conclude by just mentioning that. 
but we take literally as it, as it was there in the Greek that here is the conclusion of the prayer. And of course it deals with this subject of lead us not into temptation. And we make the point firstly, brethren and sisters, that the term lead us in, a, in this prayer is immediately our admission that God is in control. And this is where with the prayer we divide it up a little bit because if we read a simple statement, lead us not in temptation, we miss the point that it is lead us is what we're saying to God. We're putting it our lives in his care. We're asking him to look after us. And so it's our admission in using that word lead us that God is totally in control of what is taking place. Now we won't have a chance this morning to to particularly look at these quotations but you can write them down and look at them in your leisure. We have that delightful opportunity today of course of, of viewing the children's work and having presentations to them. Oh sorry. Uh, presentations to them so uh, we won't go through all of these quotations but I do suggest you write them down and that you have a look at them yourself where there is the need on us on our part brethren and sisters to to understand that simple principle uh, simple principle God is absolutely in control we live by his providential care and so there are the verses here that we've we've uh, taken um, to illustrate that Psalm 27, 31, 139 and of course in Matthew 7 verses 13 to 15 the admission that God is in control and that is why of course we are appealing unto him and we ask him for help in our life and we make this very strange request lead us not into temptation first thing we have to recognise brethren and sisters is the word temptation that's used here is used in scripture uh, as a positive thing because it's the word which is sometimes translated trial or proving to prove it's the same word but it is used in the negative sense as well of rebellion against God and so it's used in both those aspects now which of it do we think would be the one that is appropriate to the Lord's prayer would it be positive we're saying unto God lead us not into trial or we're saying lead us not into the rebellion against God or not into to, uh, temptation in that negative sense. Well, let's ask a few questions. Negatively, we have the quote in James 1 verses 13 to 15. Let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God, for God cannot be tempted with evil. This is using tempted in that sense of the word tempt. Neither tempteth he any man but every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. Then when lust has conceived, it brings forth sin, and sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death. Now that verse, brethren and sisters, becomes the key to what is being spoken of here, undoubtedly, because it not only deals with temptation, but it talks about that temptation going to the stage where it is conceived and it bringeth forth sin. And in the prayer, that's what it says lead us not in temptation, deliver us from the evil. But we're told here that God doesn't tempt any man. Then of course the obvious thing is that it would be unnecessary for us to pray to God and say, lead us not into temptation. Because in that negative sense he doesn't do it. He said that in James. I don't do that. I don't tempt man. So what would be the point in our prayer of saying to him, don't tempt me. We know he won't. Because that is not uh, his nature to do so. So we can, if you like, divorce from this, uh, from this divorce, divorce, take away from this 
um, uh, prayer, that aspect of it. We're not really here talking of temptation at all. We're talking of trial. Because in the positive it says, Count it all joy when ye fall into divers temptations. Blessed is that man who endureth temptation. For when he is tried he shall receive the crown of life which the Lord has promised to them that love him. That's also, of course, in James 1. But again we have that question. That if, in fact, in in this verse we are using the word temptation in this positive way and that it is good for us because James says you need it. You need temptation. You need the, the trial and the proof. So we count it all joy. So why on earth then, brethren and sisters, would Christ say we ask him not to lead us into temptation? Wouldn't it be obvious that if it is so good for us, we'd say to God, well, lead me into temptation because I know that it is good for me. Well, again, brethren and sisters, it really comes back to that first point, lead us. It comes back to the superiority of God. It comes back to the fact of who God is. And we say that it would be absolutely precocious of us to, to um, that's a question, sorry, that we would ask, but it would be precocious and arrogant of us, therefore, to say to God, bring it on. I know trials necessary, I can handle it, you bring it on. It would be entirely precocious. And the example, brethren and sisters, of that is very clearly the Lord himself. Because look what Matthew, uh, that the Lord Jesus Christ says in Matthew, and I think it's two or maybe three occasions he says this, that he says, O oh my Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. That cup, brethren and sisters, was a trial. That cup was the proof. This was the putting the, the, uh, the, the um, lamb to the proof. And yet, the Lord Jesus Christ says, if it be possible, let it pass from me. An acknowledgement of his humanity. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as thou wilt. Now, if the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who never sinned, saw it as wrong and precocious and arrogant to ask God to take these tests away from him, to, to deliver tests unto him, then surely it would be so for us. And so we've got the example of the Lord Jesus Christ. So the prayer is a very dignified thing. It's looking at the subject, brethren and sisters, from the Lord Jesus Christ's point of view and that we should not be uh, precocious or arrogant and say to God, yes, you bring the trial on because we realise our weaknesses, brethren and sisters, and in most trials that we go through, we're going to fail anyway. But to ask him to bring it on would be to say to him, well, we never fail, so you can bring all the trials you like on us. And that is why it's worded in this way. It's a further illustration of the greatness of the Almighty God. And so we could say that the explanation of those words lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil, and that a summary of that is something goes something like this. This is the meaning of the verse. Lead us not into temptation because we realise our weakness. But if you do try us because we need it and we leave God to to decide whether we need that trial, deliver us from the evil that we won't go right to the end and become sin. Because when we're put under trial, brethren and sisters, we can do two things. We can withstand that trial and still remain godly or we can allow the trial to overcome us, which it normally does, and and, uh, of course it brings forth the fruit of sin. And so that's what he is meaning and lead us not into temptation but deliver us from evil. Lead us not into temptation because we do realise our weakness but 
if you have to try us, which of course we know from scripture he will, and it's because we need it, deliver us from going too far in that trial and failing in it, of falling into sin. And so that would seem to be the meaning of that. And Matthew 26 picks it up so very, very beautifully. Watch and pray that you enter not into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. There's why we ask not to be led into temptation, but there's also the answer as to why we ask to be delivered, because the flesh is weak. And in most trials that we are put through, brethren and sisters, unless we are very careful, we will fail. And therefore we ask him not to put us in there, but to deliver us from the evil if we need to be put under that temptation. And so we have now the need for trial in our lives. And this is of course following on the principle that although we ask God not to put us into trial, we do need it. And there are of course a number of classic quotations that regard, in regard to trial. And again, we can't go through them all, but perhaps we can pick up a couple of them. The first of Peter chapter 4, the second one there, we just pick that one up and see that the scripture is very clear as to whether we need trial or not. Whether our lives, it is needful for us to, to go through this trial. And of course the, the, we'll look at Hebrews 12 as well because there we're told a very important principle that if we haven't got temptation we are not, we are not a, uh, a son of God. First of Peter chapter 4 uh, verses 12 and 13. Beloved, think it not strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you as though some strange thing happened unto you, but rejoice inasmuch that ye are partakers of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory shall be revealed, ye may be glad also with exceeding joy. So when trials come on us, brethren and sisters, don't be surprised, because God brings them on his sons. Don't be surprised, but see it as an identification with the Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, look at the, think of the Lord Jesus Christ and how he, brethren and sisters, how he treated trials in his life. He overcame them by the power of God. And therefore, using him as an example, we should do that. And so very clearly, Peter tells us we will have trial. Don't be surprised, but it identifies us with the Lord Jesus Christ. And in Hebrews 12, as we said, there's a wonderful chapter where the Apostle Paul, Paul uses that strong language. We quoted it in one of our earlier studies, but where he tells us very clearly that not only is trial necessary, but if we haven't got it, then we are not the sons of God. Verse five, from verse 5 of Hebrews 12. Have you forgotten the exhortation which speaks unto you as children? My son, despise not the chastening of the Lord. You'll notice that's from uh, Proverbs chapter 3, verse 11 in the margin. That's so many of the uh, words of the New Testament are taken from that book nor faint when thou art rebuked of him. For whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth, and scourgeth every son whom he receiveth. If ye endure chastening, God dealeth with you as with sons. For what son is he whom the Father chasteneth not? But if ye be without chastisement, therefore are ye part, whereof all are partakers, then are ye bastards and not 
sons. And as we said last time we quoted it, that is a particular Greek word and that's the equivalent of it in the English. We would say illegitimate, I suppose, to, uh, to be a little bit more discreet, but the power of the word is, is uh, that word in the English. We are not the sons of God if we don't receive trial in our life. But notice the trial is mentioned as not just getting the trial, but of being able to uh, not faint when we are given the trial. That's what makes us the sons of God. The reason, brethren and sisters, that sometimes sometimes trials fail in our life is, of course, that we go too far. We perhaps don't even see the incident as a trial from God and we allow it to go right to its conclusion and find ourselves sinning against God. When God places us in these areas of temptation, brethren and sisters, these areas of trial, we have to see it as a trial from God, see what lessons we can draw from it and, of course, have the ability through God to stop it from going to its natural end. And so we find that it tells us that in James 1, that every man is tempted, in the negative sense, when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. When the lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin, and sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death. And I believe that sin there, brethren and sisters, is the evil that is spoken of in the, uh, the Lord's Prayer. Deliver us from the evil. The evil is that to which that trial will go if we let it take control of us. Hebrews 3 verses 8 and 9 Harden not your hearts as in the the provocation, the 40 years in the wilderness, in the day of temptation in the wilderness, when your fathers tempted me, proved me and saw my works 40 years. And how many incidents, brethren and sisters, can we pick up from the 40 years where God put his people under trial? and they dismally failed because they didn't see it as a trial from God and therefore they failed and they were drawn into sin. And that's where, of course, the second part of the, uh, the trial, uh, of, of the prayer rather, lead, uh, deliver us from evil, uh, has its place. We mentioned in the beginning that to actually ask God to bring on that trial would be boasting before God and say, well, we will be able to handle it. And there are, of course, some scriptures that relate to that. And people who unfortunately have boasted that they are able, instead of, instead of, uh, as I said, um, uh, walking away from that temptation and not uh, seeing it as, as important to them, they have, of course, boasted that they could withstand that pressure. Peter, of course, was a classical example and several times he did this. Matthew 26, Peter said unto him, Though all men be offended because of thee, I won't be offended. He was basically saying, Look, you bring on the problems, the Lord says to the Lord Jesus Christ, I'll be able to handle them, I won't be offended. And of course we know what the end result was. But finally he denied him thrice. And so he remembered, it says in verse 75, he remembered then the words of Jesus which said unto him, Before the cock crow, thou shalt deny me thrice and he went out and whipped bitterly. He was relying, brethren and sisters, upon his own strength. He was boasting that he had the ability to overcome any trial that might come his way, including the fact that they might try and take the Lord Jesus Christ. But of course he was to fail dismally. And I think Peter probably is one of the wonderful examples for us at that particular occasion 
because what he showed us, brethren and sisters, is where we fail is in the smallest things. I'm sure that if somebody suddenly burst in through that door with a submachine gun and said, right, uh, all of you here, um, I want you to denounce the Lord Jesus Christ um, or I'll shoot you. I think we'd all say to him, well, I'm afraid you'll have to shoot me. But it's just those little times in life, brethren and sisters, when something comes up about the truth or about the Lord Jesus Christ and we don't do what we should do. And that's what it was with Peter. Peter said, I'll even take the sword on your behalf. And he did, he proved that. He lopped off the ear of the high priest's servant. But when it came to just answering a little girl and who all she did was align him with the Lord Jesus Christ, art thou one of his disciples? And that's where he failed in. Again, in the case of Peter, remember when they were out on the boat and Peter again in his boat said to Peter, look, you bid me come to you on the water and I'll walk. All you have to do is call out to me and ask me to come and I will walk on the water. And of course the end result was that when he saw the winds boisterous he was afraid and began to sink and he cried saying, Lord, save me. We must, brethren and sisters, see trial in our life as very, very serious and something we can't treat lightly. And We make no idle boast because we realise that we can fail. And it's realising then, brethren and sisters, that we can fail, that the prayer goes on then and says, deliver us from evil. It's an admission by us to God that if you do need to bring trial upon us, then we are weak and we may fail. And so we ask him to deliver us from the evil. The word evil there, of course, it says deliver us from evil, but it is definite in the definite article there. It is the evil. Uh, it's seen by the church so much that of course they make this the devil uh, that deliver us from the devil, the evil one but it's, it's emphasised there brethren and sisters because it's talking of the evil that comes from that particular trial it's identifying it with that which the Lord Jesus Christ is talking about when he says that uh, trial will come upon us but deliver us from the evil that is associated with that And so we've got some quotations that will illustrate that for us again. Now, we won't won't take up the time of looking them all up, but take the first one, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, and let's see the the Apostle Paul's approach to this subject. 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 10 and verse 13. Verse 12 is very much relevant to the subject because the one who says to God, bring the trial, I can handle it, is in verse 12. Wherefore let him that thinketh he standeth, take heed lest he fall. There hath no temptation taken you as such is not common to man. But God is faithful to whom he will not suffer you to be tempted above that which ye are able, but with the temptation also make a way of escape that ye may be able to bear it. But we can't always see that way of escape, brethren and sisters, and that that is what the prayer is saying. If you bring trial on us, then show us the way out of the predicament. Show us the way out of that trial. And generally, if you look at it scripturally, the way out was a very simple way. We take, for instance, the unnamed priest, remember, who was told when he went up into the northern kingdom, When you come back, don't stop for anybody. Come back. Don't turn to the left or the right. Do not go into another person's house. Come directly back to the southern kingdom. And on his way back, he meets a priest who says, 
I have received from God the message that you are to come into my house. How do we handle that, brethren and sisters? Well, really it was a simple one because it's matching the words of the prophet against what God himself said. And God himself said to him, don't stop on the way. Very simple. Do what God says, don't do what the priest does. But that priest had said, but it came from God. That threw a doubt in the mind of that prophet, so he went into the house and we know what happened, of course, as he as he went on his way he was devoured by the bear and so we have the results of that but it was such a simple thing it was a matter of believing and obeying God or not doing it we can go right back to the very first case in scripture with the case of Adam and Eve and wasn't it the same? Eve, all she had to do was persist with the serpent and say no, I'm sorry, whatever you say it sounds reasonable but God has said but she didn't The answers are there, brethren and sisters. God will provide the way out of all temptations that we come into, but we have to see what they are. And that's what really delivers from the evil he's talking about. We're saying to God, give us the eyes that we can see the way out of these problems, that we will not go to the extent where it will become a sin against thee. Let's jump then to the last one, Revelation 3 and verse 10. Again, there is here the opportunity for those in the first century to have overcome the trial. Chapter 3, reading from verse 9, Behold, I will make, make them of the synagogue of Satan, which say they are Jews and are not, but do lie. Behold, I will make them to come and worship before thy feet and to know that I have loved thee, because thou hast kept the word of my patience I also will keep from thee the hour of temptation which shall come upon the world to try them that dwell on the earth. And so there's an admission by Almighty God that he will put them under trial. However, he will deliver them from the hour of temptation. He will deliver them of the final result, which in that case was their very death when he brought that upon the earth. Only, of course, had they accepted that and maintain their stand in the truth. But when God provides the trial, he provides, brethren and sisters, a way out. Now there are some beautiful examples in scripture of people who have uh, failed and who have been successful in regard uh, to this subject. Let's have a look at the evidence of uh, the life of Abraham. And we've got, of course, two of them here. And we'll find firstly... Abraham in Genesis 22 did the right thing. He did exactly what God asked him to do. Had he not done it, brethren and sisters, had he balked and said, no, look, this is just going too far, I won't offer my son at all, then he would have failed the trial. But he continued, brethren and sisters, and I believe knowing, as, he, as we would point out, that when they went to, this, went to, uh, to offer Isaac, that he had told his men, we will come to you again. He knew that God would give him a way out. That to him there would be a deliverance from the evil. The evil would be, of course, in this case, of slaying another human being. And God, he knew that God would would, uh, deliver him, but he was prepared to go as far as God had told him to go. And so we know the results. And of course, in in, uh, uh, verse 1, he's told that he is to take Isaac, his only son, and offer him... And we go to verse 13 and we know the end result. Abram lifted up his eyes 
and looked, and behold, behind him a ram caught in the thicket by his horns. And Abram went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering in the stead of his son. And so because Abraham withstood the trial, because he did what God asked him to do, God in the, in the end provided an out for him. And he was, was delivered, of course, from sinning before his God. And of course there was provided, interestingly enough, wasn't a ram. But um, of course he had said to his son back in verse 8, God will provide a lamb. And God didn't provide a lamb, he provided a ram. He did it for a very good reason, I believe, because had he provided a lamb, then Isaac and anyone else who had heard him would say, oh, well, that's what Abram was talking about. But Abram wasn't talking about that animal at all. He was talking about the lamb of God who would take away the sin of the world his only begotten son and so to identify that and to say that, that Abraham looked to the day of the Lord Jesus Christ God provided a ram but there might be no mistaking in that regard but then we have the other incident of course in Genesis, back in Genesis chapter 12 of a time when Abraham like most of us failed and it was of course in the case of the, the, uh, his wife Sarah that beautiful woman whom he realised would become a problem to him. And so he says in chapter 12, 12 and verse 12, he says, to, or go back to verse 11 again to pick up the connection. It come to pass when he was come near to enter into Egypt, he said unto Sarai his wife, Behold now I know that thou art a fair woman to look upon. Therefore it shall come to pass that when the Egyptians shall see thee, they will say, This is his wife, and they will kill me, but they'll save thee alive to save thee alive. Say, I pray thee, thou art my sister, that it might be well with thee. Abraham failed, brethren and sisters, in this trial. The brethren and sisters, if not in those words, he would have been praying unto his father, like we do, that we might be delivered from the evil. And so how was he delivered, brethren and sisters? Well, of course, God took things in hand and we know that Pharaoh received the message loud and clear as to the sin of what he was going to do. And because Abraham was a faithful man, although on this occasion he didn't have the strength to withstand that trial, God intervened and took him from it. And that's the principle that's involved when we say, deliver us from the evil. That if we haven't got the strength to do it, then you do something which will deliver us from the evil. In that sense, brethren and sisters, it's a wonderful prayer. Of Joseph, of course, there are several occasions in his life because his life was one of trust in his father, uh, his father in heaven, that is. Um, chapter 39. And here's one where, brethren and sisters, God answered his prayer. God answered the problem, but certainly not in a way that I think Joseph would have particularly liked on the occasion. And we make the point, we've got to be prepared, brethren and sisters, if we ask God to deliver us from the evil, that he does it his way, not our way. When we ask God to deliver us from the evil, we're saying to him, you do it and you do it the way you think best. Because if it was left to us, brethren and sisters, we would have, in many occasions, a different way of getting out of that problem. But you take poor old Joseph. He was a wonderful, faithful man. Coming from a family which definitely had a problem as far as the fairer sex were concerned, and of course he comes to the situation in verse 10 that it came to pass as, as Potiphar's wife spoke to Joseph day by day and he hearkened not unto her to lie by her or to be with her. And so it went on and we know that later on she was to, uh, to cause 
uh, he was to finally, or in verse, we can read it down, she caught him by his garment in verse 12, lie with me, he left his garment in her hand and fled and got him out. So he was able to withstand that trial. But how do you get out of that, brethren and sisters? And his prayer to Almighty God was, deliver me from this situation. God put him in jail. God put him in jail in answer to that prayer. You can't be delivered from that situation any greater than that. She couldn't get to him in jail. No way in the world. But you see, I'm sure Joseph in his mind wouldn't have wanted that. He would have wanted some easy way out just for something to happen that she couldn't contact him. But God put him in jail for three years. That was God's way of answering Joseph's prayer, leave me from the evil. And we have to be prepared, brethren and sisters, to go with God where he takes us because he knows best. And as Joseph found himself there in prison, so many positive things came out of that. The jailer himself and those that were in prison with him and the results that took place after that in his elevation to the land was all based on those years that he spent in prison. It was a wonderful answer to his prayer, deliver me from the evil. But I'm sure he wouldn't have appreciated that particularly at the time. And so it is with us, brethren and sisters, when we pray to God, that he would deliver us from the evil. Be expected for God in his mercy, in his wisdom, to maybe put us in situations we don't like, but they will relieve us of that problem which we had. We have, of course, in the case of the Lord Jesus Christ, the fact that he, of course, always, his Father was there to deliver him. We won't go to, to Hebrews 4 and verse 12. We know that it speaks of the deliverance of the Lord Jesus Christ because of his trust in his Father. But then we have David and that brings us to the reading that we had today. An amazing chapter in which David deals with an incident in his life where he actually failed again a trial. Because in Psalm 34 we notice that the caption tells us it's the time when he changed his behaviour before Abimelech. He went into Gath and there he kind of found himself into all sorts of problems. And it tells us what he did because it says in... Um, in verse, uh, verse 8, O taste and see that Yahweh is good. Blessed is the man that trusteth in him. Fear Yahweh his servants, for there is no want of let, no want to them that fear him. And he says in verse 4, I sought Yahweh and he heard me and delivered me from all my fears. We go back, brothers and sisters, to that incident. We know nothing in the record of him offering a prayer to God. All we know from the record is that he found himself in Gath in a terrible situation and so it says that he scrabbled on the wall and let dribble uh, pour down his beard. They thought that he was mad and they threw him out of the city. I believe that was the answer from God. And I believe that what David was doing is what he says here, that he sought Yahweh and that seeking Yahweh that prayer that he was offering was misinterpreted by them as a madman as in fact we are interpreted as madmen we go into a public place and we feel it necessary to offer a prayer before we have our meal we bow our heads and we offer our prayer before the food we're seen as madmen around the rest of the room and in this case being a Jew I believe David would have like Jews, go to the extreme. We would say, well, look, I'm in a predicament here. So bad I could bang my head against the wall. He'd bang his head against the wall to show Yahweh that he meant what he said and his expressions to God of how he felt in getting himself in that predicament 
I believe, was what caused them to think that he was mad. Because how else could you read those words that I sought Yahweh when I was in Gath, in this predicament, and he delivered me from all my fears. And the way was there, brethren and sisters, and I believe it came from the very expressions of David to his father, and he was kicked out of that city, and the problem was overcome. And brethren and sisters, we can, we can receive that same benefit from Almighty God. We need to take literally his words. And that is that if we are put under trial, then pray, brethren and sisters, for the way, in accordance with his will, that we can overcome that trial. And so the prayer, as it comes to its conclusion, brethren and sisters, is full of exhortation for us. Finally, we make the point, brethren and sisters, that I want you to turn with me to Galatians chapter 6 because along the same lines, we in fact have a... It's there on the board anyway, if you want to read it. Um, We have a responsibility to our brethren and sisters because we have a responsibility to assist our brethren and sisters to get out of the evil that they're in. So often, brethren and sisters, when someone comes to us for help, we say, well, you got yourself into that predicament, you get yourself out of it. It'll be good for you. But scripture tells us, no, if we have brethren and sisters that come to us seeking for help, then we give them that help because it's a manifestation of godliness. We began our talk by showing that godliness was being like God. Therefore, the way that God acts is how we should act. The way that God thinks is how we should think. Remember the quote we turned to, that we are to develop um, eternal life. We are to, to, sorry, divine nature. We are to develop the nature of God and part of that nature is to help someone who is genuine in their predicament. And that's what we're called upon by Paul. If a man be overtaken in a fault, ye which are spiritual, restore such a one in the spirit of meekness, and that's an important word because we can do it in, a, in, a, in the opposite to that. We can very belligerently say, as I said, well, you got yourself in that, that predicament, you get yourself out, you do this, you do that. But it's to be done in a spirit of meekness, considering thyself, lest thou also be tempted. And in that, in that word tempted, we are told that this brother and sister were under, under trial from God. They were under trial that God allowed and they got themselves in a position and therefore it's up to us to assist each other. And so we don't just, in that sense, leave it to God. Each of us have a responsibility to each other as well that we might deliver each other from the evil. And so we conclude, brethren and sisters, our considerations of that prayer of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we merely make mention of the what they call the doxology at the end, that which is added to, to leave a good impression on something. And it's been added to rather than finish the prayer on this note of deliver us from the evil, that there is a positive note. As we said, it's not in any of the the older manuscripts. However, it is entirely appropriate to to this prayer. And in a sense, of course, shows us what is truly correct and that is that we should not only begin but we should conclude our prayers with a recognition of Almighty God. And so the doxology to this um, to this prayer says, For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory for ever. Amen.